Well, good morning. Good morning. If this is your new to Cornerstone, I'm so glad you're here. My name is Christian Burkhardt. I'm one of the, the pastors here at Cornerstone. And this morning, I get the chance to continue our series in the book of Acts, a series that we're calling A New Covenant Community. Is that caught on yet why we're calling it that? Because that's what we see throughout this book. There is something new that's gone on here, but yet it is all wrapped up in this covenant, this, this I guess you could say, formal agreement relationship that God has made with us through His Son, Jesus Christ. He is a covenant-making God throughout His Word. And His covenants, if you watch throughout Scripture, they get better and better and better. In each covenant, He makes promises that He fulfills in the next. And now, when Jesus, on the night when He was about to be crucified, passed around that cup during the Lord's Supper, He said, this is the new and everlasting covenant. We're not waiting for a bigger one. We're not waiting for a better one. The new and everlasting covenant has come. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, that's the community that we get to be a part of. That's why even this evening at 5 o'clock, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. We're going to get together and share a meal together as a new covenant community here in Simi Valley, Cornerstone. This is what we're going to be doing. If you've RSVP'd, that's awesome. We've got about 150 people that have RSVP'd. If you haven't, Still come. We'd love for you to come. If you're able to, bring some food to share. But again, 5 o'clock in this room, we'll be doing that tonight. We're going to be continuing in Acts chapter 4. Last week, we looked at a big chunk. And I'll be honest, I tried to cover too much. Too much detail in everything that we did. So thank you guys for, for hanging with me. One of the biggest things that we wanted to point out last week was just the way in which we begin to see in Acts chapter 4 a pattern emerging. I'm going to put that up on the slide here really quickly. What we see in the pattern of the book of Acts is that it starts with Jesus sending his people on a mission to make him known to all nations, to witness to him to all nations. But he says, wait, wait till you receive power from on high. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes. Don't try to do this on your own. So in order to carry out the mission that Jesus has given us, we must depend upon him. That's even why we spent this last week praying. You guys get the chance to use those prayer guides that Terry had put together? Was that a blessing to you? Yeah, thank you, Terry, for doing that. Man, there were so many times when, this is not in any way boastful, but I found myself praying, which... That's not normal for me. Usually it's, oh yeah, I should pray. But this was like, I'd, I'd wake up and there were things in my heart and I would go to God. Like God was really drawing me near. I don't know if you guys experienced that, but I'm just so grateful for that. Of just the pressing reality that I can't do this on my own and for too long I've been trying to. In name and in thought and in word, I've gone, yeah, that's right, Jesus is all about you. I need you to do it. Oh yeah, I forgot to ask you for help to do it. I kept trying to do it on my own. We depend upon him in order to accomplish the mission that he's given us. And when God's people draw near to him through his word, through prayer, through fellowship, through even like the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit is faithful to empower us to proclaim who Jesus is to others. That's who we are. That's what we exist for. And the Holy Spirit is faithful to do that. And we saw last week the results that come from the Holy Spirit empowering the apostles to testify about Jesus. The church grows to more than 5,000 men. Not really, and we're not sure if that counts women and children, but it's bigger than it was in, in Pentecost. But not only that, there's opposition from the religious leaders. They throw Peter and John into prison. They tell them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John go, well, should we listen to you or God? Like, you, you mapped that one out for us. We, we can't not speak about what we've seen and heard. And we saw how the church, again, out of this mission that's now being opposed, they draw near to God in independence. In 
And in, in the rest of chapter 4, we see them crying out to God, not to change their circumstances, not just to overthrow those, those that oppose them, but to give them boldness to continue to speak the word of God, even in the midst of that opposition. And we ended last week in verse 31 of chapter 4, where it says that the place where they were meeting was shaken after they prayed. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. He, was, he gave them power to proclaim. And what we're going to look at starting in verse 32 is, again, the result. What did the Spirit do in the life of the church in response to him empowering them to proclaim Jesus? So Acts chapter 2, chapter 4, verse 32. Here we go. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not even a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each one as any had need. Again, we see one of Luke's summary statements where he just basically says, hey, in response to what the Holy Spirit was doing, this is what the life of this community looked like. The full number, all of them, were of one heart and one soul. There was fellowship. There was a common identity. There was a sense of we are in this together. We talked last week about how they shared life in common. They shared everything in common because they shared Christ in common. Christ was the one who built this fellowship, who gave them that common identity. And it says that out of that common identity, it even changed the way that they thought about their possessions. That no one thought that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, some people have taken this verse and pushed it too far as to say there was a sort of primitive communism operating in the church at this time. But the thing that's interesting in here is you, you never once see the apostles or anyone else mandating the sharing of things. Or therefore saying, hey, you know what, all, all personal property rights are hereby revoked and everything belongs to the church. This was not a mandated generosity. This was a spirit-motivated generosity. And you'll see in the passage we're going to look at today, there's three times where it talks about this idea of possessions belonging to people. So it doesn't abolish this idea of ownership. It's just this sense of going, those who owned things, it changed the way they viewed those things. There was personal property that was offered up at the disposal of the community's needs. It was offered up based upon what people need. It wasn't motivated externally by commands. It was internally motivated by the Spirit. They openly, it wasn't like a heavy-handed command. It was an open-handed offering. They recognized Jesus' ultimate ownership of everything that they had. And so they, not only the stuff, but themselves. And they went, well, if we're the community over which Jesus rules as king, then how does the king want me to use what he's given to me? And what you see is there's a pattern in this of as anyone had need, things were sold in order to provide for those needs. It, this doesn't seem to be the way that it's written here is not just a one-time event where First day of the church, okay, everybody sign over everything and then we'll just give it. But it just seems to be this ongoing thing that as needs arose within the church, those who had the ability to meet those needs, well, they, they basically just positioned those assets to meet the needs of those in the church. Now, here's the question, though. See what it says? It says there was no needy person among them because as any time anybody had need, they would sell it and distribute it. How did they learn about those needs? 
How'd they hear about the needs within the church? The people with needs must have let people know about it, right? You see what's going on here? It's not just the people who had stuff who shared it. The people who had needs shared their needs as well. Think about it. In order to meet a need, there's two things that have to happen. You have to know about the need, and you have to have someone who's able to meet that need. Now, which side of that equation do we typically prefer to be on? We like to be the benefactors, right? We like to be the ones who can swoop in and save the day for somebody else. It's much harder to be honest about needs that you have. Not just like monetary need, not just need for money or a place to live, but are you struggling with your kids? You're going, what the heck am I supposed to do with these little broken image bearers of God? Gosh, we want to keep that one private. So we put this pressure on our kids. Act a certain way when church people are around. we got to let that be known. Do you realize that if you have needs, whatever they may be, and you keep it to yourself, you are being just as selfish as if those who had the ability to meet your need refused to help you? That you actually prevent the body of Christ from exercising this kind of fellowship. You actually dilute the fellowship of this church by keeping your needs to yourself. So, not only do we share what we have, we share what we don't have. Does that make sense? And not out of a command. Not mandated, because this is what the Holy Spirit does. He just breeds this togetherness in us where we go, gosh, it's all Jesus is, what do you need? Not only that, there's an amazing fulfillment of, of an Old Testament promise, even here in this verse. When it says, when it says in, the verse that, in verse 34 that there was not a needy person among them, this would have called people's minds back to a very specific promise that God made in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 15. I'm going to put that slide up here on the screen. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, when God's talking about what the life of this new covenant, uh, what the life of Israel would be like once they went into the promised land, he said this. He says, There will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. He says, If you follow what I say, there's not going to be any needy among you. You will take care of each other. There will be universal provision in that way. But why throughout the Old Testament does God repeatedly have to speak judgment against his people for their disregard of the poor? For the way that they didn't care for the widow and orphan? They weren't careful to obey. And so that, that promise was never realized until here and now. The Holy Spirit working in people's hearts, giving them new desires to obey God, there's no needy person among them. This is incredible. Luke moves on from the summary statement to give us a specific example of one person who exercised this kind of spirit-empowered generosity. In verse 36, it talks about this man named Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas. We're going to hear a lot more about this guy, Barnabas. He's one of, the one of the major characters in the book of Acts, at least in the first big chunk of the book of Acts. This is where we first meet him. And let's see, in this character introduction, the first time that he comes out on the stage of the book, what do we learn about him? His name's Joseph, but everybody calls him Barnabas. As a matter of fact, throughout the rest of the book, they never even mention Joseph anymore. They just say Barnabas. And what did that name Barnabas mean? 
Son of encouragement. Son of consolation. The apostles gave him this name. The apostles, struggling and adjusting to leading this brand new group of people, and empowered by the Holy Spirit, and amazing things, I mean, even said in there, that great power was on them to testify to the resurrection. There was great grace on all of them. But in particular, this guy, Barnabas, stood out. I was going, dude, you, you, you make our job fun. You are one of those who is under our authority, the authority of the, of the apostles, but you, just, you blow wind in our sails. You're an encouragement to us. Look what he does. It says that he was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. Now, again, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, that, that name Levite should, should bring something up in your mind. There was one of the, it was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, which in Numbers chapter 1, we are told that that one tribe, the Levites, was given responsibility by God over the tabernacle to care for its upkeep, to care for its furnishings. They were like the custodians, the caretakers of the dwelling place of God in the midst of his people. You see what he's doing here? Same thing. He is, as a Levite, caring for the dwelling place of God, except for the dwelling place of God is different. It's not a building in whom, when, where God's presence dwells. It's the people in whom God's spirit dwells. You see that? He's still taking care of the dwelling place of God. And what does he do? It says that he sold the field that belonged to him, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. He's this encourager. He's this one who's just, I'm going to take care of God's people. I have something. I can meet a need. He brings it, and he puts it under the authority of the apostles to distribute it as needed. Luke takes him, and he props him up as this example of what the spirit-empowered generosity looks like. That it wasn't something he was forced to do. It's not something he was trying to get something out of, some recognition for. But yet in that way, he serves as an example of what this looks like. One of the most important things we need to understand about Barnabas is that it wasn't so much what he did that is lauded or put forward as an example. It's why he did it. It's not what, but why. It's not about the external action, but the internal motivation. That becomes even clearer because of the second example that Luke uses in what happens next. Chapter 5, verse 1. Here's what he says. Now, a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. From the outside, it just looks like another guy selling something and bringing it. To help the needs of the church. On the outside, it looks exactly the same. Let me draw your attention back over here to the blackboard. We started using this last week just to use this idea of a dandelion to talk about the, the persistent, unstoppable life of this new covenant community. Just like dandelions in your yard, they're hard to uproot. And the more you do, you actually end up spreading them around and they grow more. And that's what we'll see about this new covenant community throughout the book of Acts. Last week, it was small. Now it's getting bigger. This new life is growing. This community is getting bigger. But what you see here with Ananias and Sapphira is something sprouting out from within this community that looks the same. On the outside, it looks totally the same. But Luke shows us, and the Holy Spirit makes it very clear, that though on the outside it looked the same, what was going on on the inside was very different. It says that Ananias, with his wife's knowledge, kept back some of it for himself. And only brought part of it. I've always wondered what was the big deal. It was theirs, right? As a matter of fact, Peter's going to say that in just a second. 
It was theirs to do what they wanted with it. It wasn't the fact that they kept back money that was the problem. It was the way they went about it. It really seems like what they're doing is they're, they're trying to pass this off as the full amount. They're saying, hey, just like Barnabas did, look, we sold property. Here's the whole thing. That appearance was really what was driving them. The appearance of it was the goal. And they're pretty ingenious with the way they do it, right? It's kind of a win-win situation from their perspective. We're going to get the recognition and honor as sacrificial givers, and we're going to pad our bank account a little bit too. You can pad your wallet and your ego with one action. Looks pretty good, right? Here's what we need to understand, guys. Appearances drive us just as much as it drove Ananias and Sapphira. We want to look good. Even when we see people who will give us an example that's worth following, we're more apt to follow their actions rather than their motivation. In part because you can't see that from the outside, right? You can't tell what's motivating somebody from the outside. But there's such a strong pressure, not even just within the church, but I would just say within our culture as a whole. I think one of the, the persistent influences of Christianity, even within our culture, is that even amongst those who want nothing to do with our God, who want nothing to do with Jesus Christ or the Bible, there still seems to be this recognized value within our society of generosity, of giving back, of being a force for good within the community. I mean, think about the ad campaigns that we see all the time. The NFL cares. These giant 300-pound linebackers, they go and they pay defense. And because of that, we're supposed to go, wow, look, we, let's go buy jerseys, let's go buy tickets, let's not ignore the fact that they're beating each, up, each other up every week and then they're like disabled for the rest of their lives. But look, they painted a fence, they're giving back. Uh, the ones that, that just make me laugh a lot are the, the Honda ones, the Honda commercials, right? Random acts of helpfulness. It's ingenious. Honda can give $1,000 to help build a, like a sandbox at a preschool. And it makes us go, oh, that's good. They're generous. They're giving back. So because they spent $1,000, the next time I need to spend $30,000 on a car, I'll go to them. But yet it's still understood. We see that. And I'm not saying it's wrong. Generosity, giving back, caring for the needs of those around us are good and honorable but we don't just stop at seeing those things as good and honorable. Our hearts take it a step further. If those things are good and honorable to do, then if I do those things, and especially if I am seen doing those things, then people will honor me. I will gain a good reputation. That's what's going on. We don't even stop there, though. We get thrifty. We get cheap with it. We go, okay, if what I want is honor from people and these things will bring me honor from people, then how can I get the most bang for my buck? How can I do the least and get the most in return? How can I build my brand name recognition at the least cost to myself? This is nothing new. This is what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. But this is what humanity has been doing since sin entered into the world. We are by nature glory thieves. 
We are by nature idolaters. We are by nature those who seek to bring recognition to ourselves for that which we had nothing to do with and cannot take credit for. Think back Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. God gave humanity ingenuity and ability to create and do amazing things. And you see the people in Genesis 11 using all of their collective God-given skill and talent to build this great tower. For what purpose? To make a name for themselves. To make a name for themselves. We were created by God, Genesis 1, in His image to reflect His character. To put His name on display. But instead we went, no, you know what? I want to make a name for myself. So I'll take everything that God has given me and leverage it for my benefit. For my recognition. The thing that gets even more insidious and just twisted and gross in all this is what, what do we see Ananias and Sapphira doing? I mean, generosity, if it's for the purpose of building, making a name for yourself, it's much more about like the Tower of Babel than it is doing anything beneficial for anybody else. But they don't just stop at just pure generosity. They do it within the church. They do it with God's people. They use God's people called by God's name, redeemed by God's salvation, and say, hey, let's play the part here. So that we can use God's people to make our name great. Gosh, if that doesn't make your stomach turn, like open up and read it again. Do you see what they're doing? It's not true generosity if the end goal is to make a name for yourself. That's why Jesus, even in his ministry, he warned against this repeatedly. Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, there's this whole section where three different times Jesus goes, Be careful of doing your acts of righteousness in order to be seen by men. Because if you do that, that's all you get out of it. You get this fleeting glory and recognition. You build a name for yourself, and then you die at the end, and it doesn't matter anymore. So he says, don't store up your treasure here on earth where it all fades away. Do those acts of righteousness in secret where only your Father in heaven sees, and then he will reward you. There's one point in John chapter 5 when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees just about their disbelief. He says, look, you're searching the scriptures every day because you think that you're going to find life simply through the scriptures, but the scriptures testify about me, and you refuse to come to me in order to be saved. He says, I come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me, but somebody comes in their own name for their own glory, and you'll receive them. And he makes a statement in John chapter 5, verse 44, where he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Throughout history, one of the greatest obstacles to true belief in God has been our desire for our own glory. It's always been that way. And even here, even here within the new covenant community, within this group of people who do believe that Jesus is the Son of God, this same glory-stealing desire is cropping up again. It's rearing its ugly head again. So the Holy Spirit acts quickly and decisively to make a clear delineation between what he is doing in the community and what was really going on with Ananias and Sapphira. Look at verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, 
Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Do you see what he says is really going on with what Ananias and Sapphira were doing? On the surface, it looked just like Barnabas. But the Holy Spirit gives Peter the insight to see who does he say was filling Ananias' heart? Okay, flip back with me really quickly. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 4. Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. Look what it says in verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and just began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Flip to chapter 4, verse 8. Peter, standing before the Sanhedrin, what does it say of him? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, testified to Jesus before the same people that rejected and crucified Jesus. Look at the end of their prayer in Acts 4.31. They prayed that God would give them boldness, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you see the rhythm that Luke's building here? Who's empowering and controlling the activities of the New Covenant community? The Holy Spirit. Who's empowering and controlling the actions of Ananias and Sapphira? Satan looks the same on the outside, but on the heart and motivation level, it could not be more different. He says, man, imagine this. Imagine if the Holy Spirit hadn't given Peter this insight right now. Well, it might be a lot like what things often look like with us. We do things even amongst each other, even... I mean, think about it this way. I was thinking about this. The other day, we were, we were gathering together with some of our neighbors. We were up on a hill overlooking our neighborhood, praying for our neighbors. And one of the guys reads the, the verse out of, uh, I think it's Second Sam, or First Samuel. When, when, um, when God tells Samuel to go and anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be king. And the first son comes before, and he's the biggest and strongest. And Samuel thinks in his mind, this has got to be him. Remember what the Lord says? Don't just look at the outside. Man judges by the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so one of the guys that we're praying with, he reads this verse, and it just, especially in light of this passage, it just sunk in my heart again, and it just made me think, man, how often as I'm praying together with God's people, am I evaluating my prayer based on how many, huh, yes, Lord, and amens I get, right? You ever done that? Or am I the only one that's that jacked up, that you will pray to God to get recognition for yourself? Do you see what's going on here? This could have just slid under the radar and no one would have known any different. But the Holy Spirit wants the whole body of believers to see you can't fake this. You can't fake this and get away with it. He sees. He knows. You did not just try to lie to men. You tried to lie to God. He says, look, you were free to do what you wanted with this. You could have just kept it. You didn't have to sell it. Even when you sold it, you didn't have to bring the money to us. You could have kept it. You could have used it for something else. You could have done whatever you wanted with it. But because you sought to build a name for yourself by putting this forward as a way to build your own glory within the church, well, look what happens. Verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. It says a couple verses later that three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, comes in. And Peter gives her a chance to be honest. Hey, did you sell the land for this much? Yeah. Okay. Okay, first off, how did nobody tell Sapphira? Three hours went by. 
How many nobody like as she's walking in go, hey, just make sure you're honest, <laughs> right? But she walks up and plays the part. She toes the line. She says exactly what she's supposed to say according to what she and her husband have plotted together. And look what Peter says in verse 9. How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down and breathed her last. Do you see how serious this is? Do you see how seriously God takes it when we seek to make a name for ourselves instead of living to make his name known? This is not to be trifled with. How did the church respond to this? Do you see it? What was the reaction of everybody standing around watching? Great fear. It says it twice. Verse 5 and again in verse 11. Great fear seized everyone who heard about these things. It seized the whole church. Why did they respond with fear? What's that? Yeah, I'm not sure that it was the fear of, oh my gosh, there were secret agents among us. There were these imposters in our midst. How could that happen? I think it was much more the fear of going, that could have been me. Gosh, haven't I done that same thing? It wasn't that fear of standing up and going, ew, how could that have gotten in here? It was going, that's in me too. You see, there was personal consequences that God meted out on Ananias and Sapphira. But this whole scene wasn't just about them. It was corporate in scope. It was for the sake of the community to see and to be warned. It's almost like when you see, like, like if some of you guys I know are teachers in different settings. And, you know, the, the saying in education where you don't smile till Christmas? How you've got to lay down the law with your class off the front end so they know what's expected. And then you can kind of play with it once they know it's expected. Or many of you guys that are parents and you have multiple kids, you know, you know what it's like when like, you discipline one of them and suddenly the rest of them are all like, yes, Father, I'll do whatever you say. There is an example made in this instance. There's a sense of going, oh my gosh, like, if God takes this that seriously, if God takes it so seriously, not just what we do, but why we do it, then we need to take it that seriously as well. That's what he's doing here. It was a personal event for Ananias and Sapphira, but it was about more than just them, which is why the whole church feared. Another question I think that might be coming up in your minds, because it's what comes up in my mind, is were they believers? Were they, were they true believers, or were they imposters? Were they those wolves in sheep's clothing, if you will? The truth is we can't tell from the text. It doesn't say one way or the other. We can really try to stretch it one way or the other based upon our theological viewpoint. But the one thing that is clear, they're part of the church. They're part of this community. And so, if God will hold even those who are part of this community that accountable to our actions, we've got to take this seriously. It seems in some ways that this is kind of similar to what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the passage that's talking about the Lord's Supper, where he talks about because of their misuse of God's Supper for their own purposes, to make a name for themselves, to enjoy what they wanted at the detriment of the rest of the community, Paul says in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, this is why some of you have died. 
because you've been misusing this. That even within a local body of believers, God will teach us harsh lessons in this way. Here's the point, guys. If we are the new covenant community, if we are a new covenant community, then we need to understand that this new covenant can go farther than the old one could. It can go deeper than the old covenant could go. Throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly talked about how what we really need is not just rules. What we really need is not just form and structure and to toe the party line and act the act. What we need is new hearts. You see that throughout. I mean, even in the book of Deuteronomy, there's a point in Deuteronomy chapter 5 where the people are all crying out together going, we will serve the Lord, we'll obey Him, we'll do whatever He says. And God almost like wistfully goes, oh, I wish that they always had this heart. He says, oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and keep my commandments so that it might go well with them. Because I know this is fleeting. I know that right now they want to do it, but tomorrow they won't. You see God even lamenting in in Isaiah chapter 29 when he talks about these people are honoring me with their lips. They're saying all the right things, but their hearts are far from me. The glory of the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36 is that God would give us new hearts. He would give us a new spirit. He would put his spirit within us and he would cause us to walk in his ways. That he would transform us from the inside out like we just sang about. But even now that this new covenant has been initiated, even now that God is making our hearts new and he is giving us new desires, the old desires don't die easily, do they? And they don't die quickly. The whole point of this passage is to go, look, we're going to be the easiest people to convince of our own good motivations. But the Lord's the one who judges our hearts. He's the one who tests our hearts. That there's going to be this conflict. One day when Jesus returns, we will no longer struggle with the temptation to make a name for ourselves. When he makes all things new, the promise that we see in Revelation 21 is that there will be no sin or sorrow or death or any of those things anymore. One day we won't even have to wrestle with this anymore. But right now we do. But like we like to act like we don't. We face the constant temptation to act like we don't wrestle with this every single day. We face the constant temptation to fake it. To live like there's not a war going on inside of us. But that's what life in the Spirit looks like right now. It's a war inside our hearts. Paul makes it so clear in Galatians chapter 5. Look what he says. I'm going to put this one up on the screen. I think I put There it is. Paul says this. He says, I, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. How does he describe the life of walking by the spirit? There is a war between the desires of your flesh, those old desires to make a name for yourself, and the new desires to actually put Jesus' name on display. So what should our lives look like? They should look like there's a war going on inside of us. The very next verse, I didn't put it on there, but what Paul says is, look, if you live by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You're not just looking for external mandates to tell you what to do. You can actually have the Holy Spirit motivate you internally 
to do this. Where are you attempting to fake it in your walk with the Lord? Whether amongst us, whether amongst those around you, whether with unbelieving family members where you want to look good and clean and nice, and where are you right now seeking to make a name for yourself, even through good godly actions, even through God and his people? Gosh, that's what I've been wrestling with all week. Like, I felt conviction about when I pray with others, but do you understand the war going on inside of me right now? Every time I get up here to teach God's word, I want Jesus' name to be known, but if I'm honest, I want my name to be known too. I want to make a name for myself. I want you guys to think I'm a good, witty communicator. I want you to think that I both convict you and encourage you and that you want to bring your... That's all going on inside my heart. And this pastor told me, I can't play around with that. I can't just swallow it down and have nice, flowery, spiritual language so that even as I talk about Jesus, I'm going, look, they think I'm awesome. How much I talk about Jesus? This is not to be played with. The reality is for every single one of us, inside our hearts is just this swirling, nasty soup of motivations. Some good, some bad, but they are so entangled together how do, we, how do we untangle that? How do we actually gain clarity on what's really going on in our hearts? How do we respond with the fear that we see the church respond of going, God, where is that in me? Where is this desire to make a name for myself? We need the Holy Spirit to shine light on the darkness in our hearts. We need what Chris talked about two weeks ago. We need the unction of the Spirit, the empowerment of the Spirit to even know what's going on in here. If you're sitting here today, and maybe you've walked with the Lord for years, but you're just going, I've, I've never seen that power. I've never just seen that, that sense, that unction from the Spirit. Could it be because you're still trying to make a name for yourself? Because the Holy Spirit's not going to help you with that. He's not going to help you put yourself on display. He won't. Matter of fact, James makes it so clear that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. How do we sort through this? How do we gain clarity on what's going on in our hearts? Remember our pattern? We've been given a mission to make Jesus known, but we cannot do it on our own strength. We can't even know what's going on in our hearts on our own strength. We need to depend upon God. We need to draw near to him in prayer and ask him to make it clear to us. Here's how I want to end this morning, guys. We talked last week about one of the aspects of prayer that's so huge is not only is it about dependence on God, but in a way it's kind of like answering God. It's responding to God based upon what he's told us. I'm going to give us all about three or four minutes on our own just to pray and ask God in that way. And not just ask him, but I'm going to put some verses up on the screen. They'll be scrolling through about every 20 seconds or so that are just in that same way. It's where God talks about his ability to see in our hearts better than we can. And us in response asking him, would you purify my heart? Would you change me? Because here's the thing. I don't, some of you guys in here right now, you are very sensitive to the Holy Spirit. You are very sensitive to God's word. And so you actually might feel almost paralyzed by this, of going, how do I do anything now? Do I stop doing everything until I sort out what's going on in my heart? Well, then you'll never get started again. <laughs> How do we do this? How do we learn how to walk forward in faithfulness 
and have those hearts purified, have those heart motivations purified, gosh, we gotta depend upon Jesus and walk with him. Does that make sense? So let me pray for us, and then I'm gonna give you guys some time to pray on your own. Holy Spirit, we need you. We're so easy to convince. We can convince ourselves of whatever we want. We can downplay and take the edges off and shift and, and in the end feel pretty good about ourselves. The point of this is not that we would feel bad about ourselves, but that we would feel good about you, that we would want to make you known, that we would be like John the Baptist when people were starting to follow Jesus and he said, look, he's got to increase and I've got to decrease. God, would you make that desire in our hearts? Would you purify us that we might purely make you known? I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus.